Good morning. It's so good to be back at Oak Park. I think it was just a couple months ago uh, we were here, and, uh, but I was by myself. And uh, man, I'm so happy to have my family here with me, my wife and three kids. My oldest son, who is eight, was born in Louisville. And this is his first time uh, to be back in, uh, in the area where he was born. And the rest of my kids have never been to Louisville before. Uh, so we're so excited to just to be back, and this is like roots for us. We have so much of my life and our, my, wife, my wife and our story uh, has, was written, a, lot, a big chapter of our lives was written in, in this area, and, and so glad to be back, and be back with Oak Park, our church family. I was, last Sunday uh, in Haiti, I was actually preaching in, in Dizam, and uh, every month, the, the last weekend of the month typically, but because they knew I was coming, they moved it a little bit uh, to accommodate that. Um, the pastors and the deacons in our network of, of, of indigenous churches get together for training. And uh, last month in March, we provided for them uh, their first theology handbook and, uh, and concordance in their own language. And so, so excited. It was like Christmas for them. I, you know, I, I got to see and, and, and give to Deacon Sonny and Pastor Henriquez of your partner church in Leicester their first theology handbook. Now, things like this we take for granted. We have so many resources in the English language. But God opened doors for us through some uh, French and Canadian publishing companies to provide these resources through your church partnership. And so just want to say thank you on behalf of Pastors, Pastor Henriquez and Deacon Sonny for your support for their training. And we have a chance to come alongside them and work with them. And so along with our other pastors and deacons, they'll be working through that over the course of this next year. Um, the first part of that training is biblical theology, how to see Christ in all the Scripture, how to properly interpret the narrative of Scripture together. And we had an opportunity to do that this past week and got to see them. And now to be with you, Oak Park, is such a joy uh, to be able to do that. You know, you, your partnership with us has now been going on almost five years. And uh, from the early days, before really the Haiti Collective was just beginning and, and taking form, uh, Pastor Chase came down to help us train pastors and do Bible conferences and teach the gospel and, and teach God's word. And, and uh, I just want to say thank you on behalf of the Haiti Collective uh, for your investment, for your ongoing investment. We believe that, we, 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 that gospel transformation happens through the local church. And as we come alongside the Haitian churches to empower them to make disciples and to, to, to train leaders and to care for orphans, that more churches are being planted. And five years ago, we had about a dozen churches um, in this in network of churches. Now we're at 21, and we're continuing to plant churches throughout Haiti and continuing to train pastors uh, through, uh, through our partnerships, and you have a big part of that. So uh, lay us there when I uh, talked to Pastor Chase, and they said, man, where can we get plugged in? I, I told him, I said, it's going to be a challenge because everywhere in Haiti is, it has incredible need and challenge. But I, when I, at the time, I looked at Leicester and I said, I don't know if any other community has greater need and greater opportunity to present the gospel than Leicester. And man, you guys just jumped in and went after it, and it has been glorious. I just was there and got to see the, the construction work of the, the new property and the building that's being built, the place to gather, um, and just to see how the church has come together through this partnership has been wonderful. You know, uh, church partnerships not just deal with uh, church planting and training pastors and leaders, but a big part of what we do is, is orphan care. And as a church and as an organization is built around the gospel of Jesus Christ, we believe that everything should be done in light of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That is, that, that, that's a defining characteristic of all that we are as Christians. We never get over the gospel. We don't graduate from the gospel. We just go deeper and deeper into it. And it's the gospel is that it, that it is 
the message of Jesus Christ that motivates us and inspires us to live and to work and to serve. And as it particularly relates to orphan care and why we should care for orphans, I mean, is this something that should be um, on the forefront of the minds of every believer? And if so, then what does the gospel have to do with how we care for orphans and, and how we shepherd them? This morning, I just want to take some time and, and, and open up one passage of Scripture, give you some context to where it's written, and in that one, one verse, to focus on really one word that un- unpacks the gospel and explains to us how we, um, how we should follow Christ in obedience to his word and do to, unto the orphan what God has done unto us in the gospel. And uh, let me just begin, first of all, maybe you should say something about my voice. Man, we, we moved up from South Florida. We, we live in that middle Tennessee, and it's spring season. And I don't know what spring season is for you. It's two things for me. It's, it's Little League baseball, and it's allergy season. And, and yesterday, we had an early morning baseball game, like at 9 o'clock. And I'm yelling on, on the third base coach, and I'm yelling at the kids to come home. And, then, and I'm walking the dog, and I'm like, I'm weeping with allergies. And so I woke up this morning, and I'm like, I, I can hardly talk. But I'm so glad to be here. So uh, let, let's look at God's word together. James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 27 really want this to be our, our place where we land this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me there. And uh, I want to read this verse together. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, when we read one verse in the Bible like this as a subject of a sermon, it's important not to extract it from the context in which we find it. And this is one reason why I love the way your, your, your elders and your pastors are committed to text-driven preaching and, and, and studying God's Word because uh, this, word, this, this verse, it may appear like it's, not, it's just like an independent silo, but it really has a flow of thought with what James is teaching us in this, in this chapter. You look back in verse 22, for example, you, you see he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, so James is, is, is exhorting us, he's, he's, he's admonishing us that when we come to God's word and we pray God's word, we listen to God's word, we internalize it, that we don't just walk away with a theor- theoretical faith. We want a faith that acts. We want a faith that impacts our lives. We want to come to God's word and say, God, what do you not want me to, not just want me to learn, but what do you want me to do in, in light of what I'm learning through your word. Now, in this verse 27, it's sandwiched with that part, but on the back end, after verse 27, you have chapter 2, where James makes a long argument, basically saying that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead, and so he's not saying that works is somehow the means by which you're justified. There is works that justify us, but it's not our works, amen? It's the works of Jesus Christ. It is his life that we could not live this perfect life of obedience to the law of God, and his sacrificial death, and that principal work in which he substituted himself in our place, bearing our sin, taking upon the wrath of God and dying, and rising again on the third day, his death, burial, and resurrection, that work is, just, is what justifies sinners in the sight of God. 
But when that work is appropriated by faith and repentance, looking to Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, then that, that faith, that work that Christ worked in us will work itself out in a life of good works. And so what James is saying is not inconsistent with what's foundational to the Christian faith. He's simply saying that the fruit of saving faith in the life of a Christian be, will be one in which that it bears good works. Now the question comes to mind, well then, what kind of good works should that be? Now isn't it interesting that verse 27 is sandwiched between don't be just a hearer, but be a doer, and faith must work itself out in a life of, of loving obedience and bearing good fruit. You know, when it comes to caring for orphans and widows, the question that comes to my mind is, are we not most susceptible to becoming, at this point, hearers only and not doers in, in our culture, in our context today? Uh, it, 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 we're prone to perhaps um, have a faith that bears good, 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 bears good works in certain areas, but maybe not so much in areas uh, that the scriptures in perhaps verse 27 talks about. You know, of all the people in the history of the world who are in greater danger of ne ne neglecting or skipping over or watering down or dismissing a, a command that we see in scripture in verse 27, I believe that's where we are today. It reminds me of a, of, of a, um, a quote that David Platt, who's the, the president of the International Mission Board, he said one time, uh, in, in reference to this verse in James chapter 1, he said this. He said, I'm convinced the deep, dark secret of, of our religious subculture in the southern United States is that we want Christianity and we want church on our terms, according to our preferences, aligning with our lifestyles. We are a people happy to go to church just so long as nothing in our lives have to change. We are people glad to be Christians just so long as we can define Christianity according to what accommodates us. The only problem is that in order for the religion of Christianity to be authentic, true, and actually acceptable before God, we have to let him define what it looks like. And his definition of religion, his definition of true Christianity is radically different from ours. You know, I think what Platt is getting at is similar to what James is getting at. He doesn't want us to simply be a hearer only. And you know what? We don't, get a we don't have the right to determine what is the Christian platform. We, don't let, we cannot let culture define what, what is important in the eyes of God. We cannot let a political season in which we find ourselves in 2016 to define what is the evangelical platform, what is the, what is the thing on which we stand. You know, what is the thing, what is it that we prioritize? What we must do is go to God's word and have God's word correct our assumptions, correct our preferences, reorient our lives and so that we are living truly biblically faithful lives in our day and age in this generation. And James says in verse 27 that there isn't an either-or proposition when it comes to visiting widows and orphans and keeping oneself unstained from the world. You know, there are those on the one hand who are on the left who are big advocates of things like social justice and wants to be a voice for the marginalized and oppressed. And then there are those voices on the right who are, care very deeply about avoiding worldliness and abstaining from ungodly behavior. And yet, James says in verse 27, that if you were to, to, to make it an either-or proposition, you are destroying the very version of Christianity that God wants us to embrace. It isn't an either-or proposition. It is, in fact, both and. God our Father wants us to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. 
In other words, true Christianity says you cannot have one without the others. Liberals might pick social justice and ignore personal holiness. Conservatives might pick, uh, denounce worldliness and neglect public compassion to the helpless. But in the sight of God, these two are not polar opposites, but mutual expressions of faith working itself out in loving obedience to God our Father. So when we look at this verse, we must allow itself, allow this verse to do, do work in us as the Spirit of God takes His Word, this double-edged sword, to, to pierce us and to convict us and to draw us near to Him so that we would have a kind of faith that works itself out, not just simply as hearers, but as doers in a way that is pleasing in His sight. So if I could summarize this, this passage and this, this sermon in one, one simple statement, it would simply be this. We should do unto the orphan what God has done unto us in the gospel. We should do unto the orphan what God has done unto us in the gospel. Now, first thing I want us to see is that this is religion in the sight of God our Father, or before God. James says that there is a kind of religion that God accepts and finds pleasing in his sight. Now, if you were to look at this in all the Bible and you say, well, what is the criteria that God would say Man, this is, this is the religion that I find pure and undefiled in my sight. It's interesting. I mean, we ought to let that land on us in verse 27, that he says it is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, why would God say, why would God put visiting orphans and widows in their affliction as, some, as a primary criteria, one of the primary criteria for pure and undefiled religion in our sight. Well, before we answer that question, we also have to acknowledge the fact that no one has the rights to define this criteria other than God himself because he is the founder of our faith. In other words, God and God alone has the right to, ter- to determine, to tell us what true religion is, what true Christianity is. We, we, we are not subject to anyone else's opinions. I agree with John MacArthur when he said, James is not speaking about what may be seen best to us or best to the world or even best to our fellow believers, but what is best in the sight of God our Father. The genuineness of anyone's religion is not determined by his or her own qualifications but by, or, or standards, but by God's standard. So as Christians... We should be concerned first and foremost about what God thinks, about what God finds important, about what God considers pure and undefiled religion. We should not be concerned about what the world thinks or what politicians think or what denominations or churches think. If our lives are to be calibrated according to what God thinks and what he wants for us, then we must recognize that he and he alone is a standard bearer of what is true faith and true religion. And what we find throughout the Bible is that God's heart bleeds for the orphan and for the fatherless. Let me just take a minute and just walk you through a few verses in Scripture that that highlights God's heart for the orphan. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Here's what Scripture says. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So here you see God declaring what he does, 
what he is like, how he acts. He executes justice for the fatherless. Exodus chapter 22, verse 21. We read, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. So here in the, in the, in the command is in a negative form. He says, you shall not mistreat the fatherless or the widow. Psalm 10, verse 17 and 18. O oh Lord, you, des- you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Psalm 68, verse 5. A father of the fatherless and protector of, or- of widows is God in his holy habitation. That was almost like a James 127 verse in the Old Testament. In the book of Psalms, a father to the fatherless, a protector of widows, is God. Where? In his holy habitation. It's like, you want to know where God's dwelling? You want to see God in all of his splendor and his glory? You want to see God as he is, how he's unlike anyone else in the world? Go to his holy habitation. What are you going to find? You're going to find a God who is a father to the fatherless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, our Father, is this. To visit widows and orphans in their affliction. Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Literally, he is upholding the lives of the most vulnerable and needy among us. The widows, who perhaps have no one to uphold their life. No one to care for them. The fatherless, who have no mom, no dad, no family, no community. God is their community. God is their father. And he upholds their lives. Proverbs verse 31, chapter 31, verse 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Finally, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. God gives a command, a command to repent, a command to return to the Lord. What does returning to the Lord look like? Here's what Isaiah chapter 1 says. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. Now these are just a few of the literally dozens and dozens of verses throughout the scripture that speak to God's heart for the orphan and for the widow. Now when you consider these verses... And we who are his children, brothers and sisters of all people, we should have his heart for the fatherless as well. We should see what he sees. We should love what he loves. We should care how he cares and bring justice the way he brings justice. Because we exist on earth to represent his character and show his ways to the world. To show the world what is our God like. And perhaps there is no better or no clearer way than we can do that than the way that we help for the healthy, helpless and the afflicted in the world, especially the orphans. But now looking back in James chapter 1, and there is a particular word, a verb. This is, if we're going to be doers, we must consider heavily, consider seriously, what this verb means to, to visit, to visit widows and orphans in their distress. Well, if we're going to do that, then what that means is we must have a faith that works itself out in caring for the orphans. Now, 
if you're looking at this as a call to action, this word visit may fall, fall on, uh, our, on our ears and our minds in somewhat a maybe a surface level way in which we may think, well, I'm going to go and visit. I'm going to go visit a friend. I'm going to go visit someone at the coffee shop. Or I'm going to go visit someone at their house. And you just, maybe you just pop in and you pop out and spend a few minutes. And you're, and you're just like, oh, okay, I've, I've done my job. I, I visited. I visited that person. Well, the Greek version, the Greek word for the word visit is the word uh, episkeptomai. Episkeptomai comes from the same root word episkos, where we get the word overseer or shepherd. Okay, so go follow with me here, track with me, okay? Literally, to visit in the Greek literally means to get personally involved in caring so that you exercise oversight as episkopos or shepherd or overseer. You exercise oversight on their behalf and helping in their need. As one commentator put it, literally, to visit means to function as a shepherd to an orphan. To function as a shepherd to the orphan. Now, maybe it's helpful to break down this word visit a little more and see how it's used throughout Scripture. And this word is also used uh, to, in reference to God and what God, how, how has God visited us? How has God come to us? When we see this word used in reference to God and his actions, it, it refers to the ways in which God has come to us to encourage us, to strengthen us, to help us in our time of need. Now, in the Old Testament, the word visit is used in Exodus 4.31. Let me just read this verse to you. It says, The Lord had visited the children of Israel in Egypt, and he looked upon their affliction. Now, for those of you who know the history of redemption and what was happening in the, in the, at the time in Israel when they were in Egypt, what was going on? They were in slavery. They were in bondage. They were afflicted. They were mistreated. They were abused. They were malnourished. They were scandalized. They were looked down upon. No one, they thought no one cared for them. Where is their God? And God came down and visited them. How did he visit them? He took ownership of their affliction. He took ownership of their plight. He sent judgment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He brought plagues upon them. And he brought deliverance to his people. He sent them out. He brought a deliverer through Moses. And his people were let go through the parting of the Red Sea. And salvation came. And that, the, the epic moment in salvation history for the Old Testament saints. They were, like, as we were talking about earlier, don't mistreat the sojourner because you were once a sojourner in Egypt. Remember, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. How did he do that? He visited his people. He shepherded them. He was their shepherd who led them out of the wilderness, led them out of bondage, led them out of slavery, took ownership of their affliction, and brought them into the promised land. Well, how do we see the word visit used in the New Testament? Well, we see this word also in reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Zacharias says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. So we're hearing a summary of the incarnation and the mission of the Son of God coming to bring salvation 
to all who believe in him for all time as a visitation. He, God visited us and accomplished redemption for his people through the coming of Jesus Christ. How did God visit us in Jesus? He came to us through his son in the midst of our slavery to sin in order to accomplish salvation and bring redemption to his people. So when you consider how this word visit is used, brothers and sisters, it ought to inform the ways in which we respond to God's word and apply it to our lives. It also should cause us to think about what God has done for us in Jesus. How has God visited us? You know, the Bible tells us that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as a triune God, has existed since eternity, past in sweet communion and perfect harmony. In God's perfect wisdom, he chose to create a world in which he would put his glory on display. And by creating man in his image, we were to exercise dominion over his creation and enjoy a relationship with him. And yet, through Adam's sin, man fell into a state of bondage to sin and separation from God. As Isaiah 53 says, we all like sheep went astray. Going our own way. We went our own way. Going away from God because of sin. And because of that, now everything is broken. We are spiritually broken. We are relationally broken. We are physically broken. And that brokenness manifests in our world where sinners are lost and in despair, needing to be rescued. We are a mass of people who are harassed and helpless, afflicted by the disease of sin, needing a shepherd to visit us. We are the orphans, strangers to the promises of God and worthy of the punishment by God for our, our rebellion against him. And yet, in the midst of our lostness and our brokenness, God sent his son to visit us. And that visit was an earthly, minish, earthly mission with God, where God would identify with us. He didn't just check in to see how we were doing. He lived among us. He wept with us. He prayed with us. And he ultimately gave his life for us. The father gave up his son on the cross so that we could become sons and daughters of God and be adopted into his family. He shepherded us to salvation. Right? First Peter 2 says, We were all straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer, overseer of our souls. Why is he the overseer of our souls? Because he visited us. He took ownership of our sin and brought us salvation. The Father pursued us with his love. He made us his, not because we are deserving as orphans, but because he is loving and because he is gracious. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves in accomplishing redemption and forgiveness of our sins. And when we truly take in the good news of this gospel message, brothers and sisters, when we take it in, when the gospel really grips our hearts and lives, it will capture our hearts, it will capture our minds, and it will change our lives. If you ever want to see where lasting change and trans transformation happens as Christians, it's not when we find a to-do to list and we find we muster the grit to check off, check off every box. Brothers and sisters, when change happens, it happens because the gospel has been renewed and we've rediscovered the beauty, the worth, and the power of Jesus Christ and all he did for us. Tim Keller says this, all change comes from deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out the changes 
that understanding creates in your heart. Let me repeat that. All change comes from deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out the changes that understanding creates in the heart, in your heart. That's why it's so important that we have Christ-centered, gospel-centered preaching. That's why when we come, like, man, we have one message to preach. You know, I think about Paul and the, and the church of Corinth. Man, the church of Corinth had all kinds of issues. They had lawsuits. They had division. They had immaturity. People were getting drunk at the Lord's table. Um, there was sexual morality. There was confusion over spiritual gifts. And Paul says at the beginning of his letter, brothers and sisters, I determined to know nothing among you than Christ and him crucified. What is he telling you? Is he saying that, that, that he's, not, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not concerned about that, the implications of lawsuits or the implications of spiritual gifts? No, he addressed them. But he addressed them under the umbrella of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that there is one message that has universal implications, that is sufficient for every need in our lives, and that's the message of Christ and Him crucified. And brothers and sisters, when we gather under the authority of Christ in submission to His Word, as His Spirit brings His Word to life to us, we have a deeper understanding of all that is, all that He is for us, and we want to live out the implications of that greater understanding in obedience to His Word. So faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our, our self-understanding, our identity, our view of the world, so that behavioral compliance to rules without heart change will only be superficial and fleeting if our hearts are not riveted again by Jesus. You know, what makes Christians distinct from the world is not merely who we are, but what inspires us to do, to live out who we are. We are a forgiven people. We are accepted. We are an accepted people in God's sight. We are considered righteous. We have been redeemed. We have been adopted. We know our true identity is in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And that knowledge restructures our motivations and it governs our priorities so that we want what God wants. And that want, that desire, is a demonstration of a faith that works itself out in a way that's pleasing to God. When we know what God has done for us in Christ, we will be motivated and equipped to do the same unto the orphan and the widow. When we relish the reality that God has visited us in the gospel, we will be a people who visit the helpless and the afflicted with hearts of compassion and practical, practical acts of caring. Where are the non-Christians giving themselves to the marginalized and afflicted? Where are the secular organizations sacrificing for a people who have nothing to offer them but their desperate need? Brothers and sisters, we are that people because that's exactly who we have been before God. We have been a people who have had nothing to offer God but our sin. We are a people who have had nothing to offer God but our need. But God's grace is greater than our sin, and his mercy is greater than our need. And we who take in that mercy and grace find ourselves wanting to extend that mercy and grace to those in our world, especially the orphan and widow in their affliction. Because when we see that helpless orphan, we see ourselves. We are reminded that God wanted us, that God pursued us, that God chose us. That God took ownership of us by becoming our shepherd and overseeing our salvation to the point that it was completed and paid in full. God took us in and brought us into his family because of unconditional love and amazing grace. The call today is to do 
for us to do unto the orphan what God has done unto us. We should visit them in a similar way that God has visited us. That means we should take it upon ourselves to personally care for the orphan to the best of our ability. And by overseeing their affliction, make it our goal to function like a shepherd, to make sacrifices so that they can find strength and help in healing. You may be asking yourself the question, well, then how do I do that, Tim? What does that look like for me? I can't, I, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do that work in your hearts, but let me just give you some practical ways in which that might happen here in Jeffersonville, Indiana. Perhaps there are children who are fatherless in a foster care system, and there's no one to love them and care, them, care for them, to bring them into the home and teach them the gospel. And perhaps you, this, being obedient to this call, to be a doer of the word, maybe saying, God, we would just, this would get us completely out of our comfort zone. Man, this would kind of change our living arrangements. This would change our budget. But I would be, God, I'm, I'm a blank check. I'm going to open it up and say, God, if you would use me to minister to the fathers, to the to children in the foster care program, that's what I would, I want to, I want to be obedient to that. It might be, and I'm not here just to be an advocate for the Haiti Collective, but man, I, I, somebody asked me, I was in Spring Hill, and I, said, I told, told my neighbors this, I said, if you asked me five years ago what I'd be doing, if I said I'd be leading an organization called the Haiti Collective and be living in Spring Hill, I'd say, you're crazy. You know, God, God put us in our lap, and one thing led to the next, and here I am championing the cause of orphans, but can I tell you, this is something that I am looking at my life and saying, God, I, I've got a whole lot of, I got a whole lot of um, uh, being a doer of your word that I've got to work out in my life. Not just being a director of an organization, but doing that for myself, for my family. You know, we have a church in Laestere that has 40 to 50 full-time orphans. And that church is doing everything they can. The poor, one of the poorest countries, one of the poorest communities in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere is you'll find faithful men and women caring for orphans. And what we're doing through our church partnerships, what we're doing through child sponsorship, you know what a child sponsorship does? I, I was listening to a radio commercial, one of talk radios, and I'm not going to tell the name of the organization, but you know, they were promoting it like, do you want to be the hero? Do you want to save the day? I mean, we all want to be heroes, right? And, but it's like, you go and sponsor a child for this amount of dollars a month, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna take one child completely out of poverty, and you're going to save their lives. And uh, I listened to that, and I was like, man, that, that, I know that kind of would, would draw upon our God complexes that we have in North America, but that's so not what child sponsorship is. You know the hero, you know who the heroes are? It's those unnamed men and women who live on less than a dollar a day, who are, who are caring for orphans and doing for them with so little, and yet giving them an opportunity to not just live, but flourish and thrive in their communities. But church family, do you know what we have an opportunity to do? Is my, God may lead you to do this. The part of being obedient to God's word is to say, you know what? I want to come alongside Deacon Sonny and Pastor Enriquez and all those leaders and lay us there. And I want, to, I want to shepherd those orphans with them. You may not ever be able to go down to Leicester. You may not, for, for whatever reason, providentially, be, be, be able to participate in a short-term mission team. But you can have a micro-shepherding shepherd, partnership with those cooks, with those teachers, with those deacons. And you can say, you know what? We'll help resource that. We'll make sure that, that child has some food. We'll make sure that child has clean water. We'll make sure that child has vaccinations and immunizations and opportunity to have uh, anti-parasitic medication so that when they eat good food, they're not, their, their systems are not eaten up with worms. Things that we, 
I've never had to worry about my child having parasites and worms, can I tell you, until I went to Haiti. Now that's all I, that's all I think about. It's like, oh, I've got to go have a doctor's checkup. Oh, do they have worms? Well, I mean, that's just, that's just that's the reality. You know what? And so what we're doing through the Haiti Collective and through child sponsorship, brothers and sisters, I don't want to pitch it to you, but it's just an opportunity to simply say, man, it's a, we can come around in a very practical, tangible way, come around and do for one what we'd love to do for 100. To say, you know what? I'll shepherd that child. I'll visit that child in their affliction who has no mom and no dad, and I will do for them what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. And if God leads you to do that, great. But if not, don't feel guilty about it. Brothers and sisters, we should respond in obedience to God's word as we have a deeper understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. So, man, there's, the, the pressure's off, all right? I just want you guys to know I love you. I am so grateful. I could not ask for a better faithful partner in church in Oak Park. But when we come to James 1, I still can't look at this and say, God, pure and undefiled religion inside of you because your heart for the orphan is this, to visit widows and orphans in distress. And that's what we want to be. That's what we want to show a world. Is our, this is how our God shepherds orphans and widows. This is how God shepherded us in Jesus. What an opportunity we have before us today. So as I close this morning, let me encourage you just to look to, look to and remind yourselves, look to God's word and remind yourselves what a mighty Savior we have. What a glorious gospel we have. As we read in Hebrews 10, he laid down his life once and for all, for all time, a sacrifice that, that pleased God so that now that we could enter into that veil through his flesh, the, that the, the, the curtain was torn and we have access to our God, not as a judge, but as a father. And he is a good, good father. And we as his children have an opportunity to put on display before a watching world the character the love, the compassion, and the justice he has. As we, his people, visit widows and orphans in their distress, take ownership of their affliction, and help them see that love that our Father has for them. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father because you did not withhold your own son from us, but you freely gave him up. How will you not also with him graciously give us all things? What an amazing promise in Romans 8. Lord, we know that nothing can separate us from your love. No height, nor depth, no principalities, no powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing can separate us. Because that is true, Lord, may we be a people who stretch out our lives, open wide our hearts, and we would give ourselves to you, to your purposes, to your church, to your people, to your mission. That in our generation, we may be people who are faithful to be doers. And that you would bless the doing so that those who are afflicted can be cared for. Those who are lost can be found. Or those who have been oppressed can be set free. Lord, please, would you have your way in our hearts today? In Jesus' name.